0: Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Uh, This is Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a soundtrack podcast where we talk about soundtracks and why they are important to us. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and you can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. Today our guest is George Soroy. He is an international best-selling author and the host of two podcasts, Excelsior Journeys and From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios. So today we're going to talk about the score to the 2011 Michael Bay film, Transformers Dark of the Moon, which is the third film of the five Transformer live-action films. So, why are we talking about this specific film today?
1: Well, uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me here, Ryan. I I appreciate it. Uh, love the show. And the reason why this particular album really sticks out to me is that it was uh, it's played a big role in inspiring a handful of scenes, not only in the uh, previous book that I'm that I have out right now, uh, which is called Ever Upward Part Two in the Excelsior Journey. But it's also done quite a bit to inspire the one I'm working on right now, which is called Greater Glory, Part Three in the Excelsior Journey. This is actually part of a young adult science fiction trilogy. That's kind of the culmination of of a uh, of working on this particular character since 1992. There's always been in throughout my whole music score collection there is uh, there are all these different tracks in more than half of the collection that I can say, well, that scene inspired this moment that I have in the overarching story, and this, one insp- this scene inspired this scene over and over and over again. And when it came to this film, Dark of the Moon, It came in right at a time that I was really kind of searching for more inspiration because I had at that time, the the time that the film had come out, I was preparing for a big move. I was moving with my wife to uh, from New York City to St. Louis, where we are now and have been for over 10 years. And I had finished up with the first book, Excelsior, and It had done fairly well. It hadn't reached the heights that it would eventually would in 2017 and 2018 when it hit the international best-selling ranking. But um, I was really looking forward to really diving into a score like this. And I knew that it was going to be really action-packed. I really liked what Steve Jablonski did with the previous two scores. And I was really taken by... By what I saw, really. Like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the, of the franchise. I'm a fan of Transformers going back to childhood. And I'm one of those that may be in the minority, I don't know, but uh, really enjoyed the majority of the films. Um, despite the fact that, that, uh, that so many different liberties were taken. But I really enjoyed them. And they, a big part of a reason why I enjoyed them was because of the, uh, the work that Steve Jablonski did. On these scores, I think he did a magnificent job, and I was really taken by certain tracks in this album. And I was really looking forward to getting the full score album, so that way I could just take a walk around my block and really kind of lose myself in the music. Which is whenever, whenever I do that, that's when the ideas for different scenes come up, and I got a lot of that from this album.
0: Sure. Yeah, I've talked to other creatives um, who do similar things. They'll build kind of a score that they feel like would fit the idea that they're working on, and they'll listen to it over and over again. So I was interested in kind of hearing how this specific score um, kind of inspired you, and it seems like it's done kind of a a similar trick for you. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was really taken by even though the this particular piece didn't really inspire a, any specific moments, the opening track "Dark Side of the Moon," which takes us through the period in the, um, in the Transformers lore where the Ark was journey was traveling from Cybertron to Earth, crash landed on the moon, and that's what caught the attention of the different satellites looking up at the at. The, Out in space in the 1960s and kind of inspired the real big space race between the U.S. and Russia. And it was it was a really cool way to insert the Transformers mythology into it. I was really I I was really taken by that with the uh, the way that it was executed in the movie and the the real intensity and the earnestness that went into um, into that score for that part of it, I thought was terrific.
0: Yeah, and Steve Jablonski has been working with Michael Bay for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done all the Transformer movies that Michael Bay directed, yep. um, not the Bumblebee film, which Michael Bay doesn't have a part of. But uh, I saw that he has been working with Michael Bay all the way back to Armageddon, even though he's not the principal composer of the scores. He's been working with Michael Bay basically for almost 25 years now.
1: Yeah, and, and I believe uh, Steve was one of the um, one of the students of Hans Zimmer. And you can definitely hear a lot of Zimmer in his work, you know. But at the same time, like he's he's been able to kind of step out of Hans's very large shadow and really make a name for himself in in this business.
0: Out of the five different scores that he's done for the, this franchise, you know, are you kind of amazed that he's been able to kind of make something different each time that also kind of has similar themes oh yeah and i if that makes sense
1: oh it does it does yeah and i feel like i was i was actually really impressed with his score for the last night which was a real shame because that was by far the weakest of the five films i was really into the way that he kind of took those those themes and really amp them up. You can really hear it at the end, the uh, the final track, "Calling All Autobots." I thought that was a terrific uh, rendition of the themes that he had been building up for for the for all the five films. And there, you know, some of the newer themes that he brought in, some really quiet themes like "Sacrifice." I thought was great, and I was really impressed by by what I heard. I really. Loved what he was able to bring for Age of Extinction. Wasn't too much of a big fan of Revenge of the Fallen. I found, I found that out of the five films, I listened to that score the least amount of time. But uh, the first one definitely inspired quite a bit. And there really is just something about this third one, Dark of the Moon, that really grabbed me. And um, it's one of those that I find myself listening to quite
0: a bit. Do you think it's because he had a little bit more creative control over the Dark of the Moon score where he didn't have to kind of interpolate as much of other artists into the score? Because it seems like that he had to do that with the first couple.
1: Yeah, he definitely, it definitely seemed like he had to do it with the first one. And with the second one, I would say like a good hand, a, a good amount of that as well, because that second one, it really was a, um, a casualty of the writer's of the um, of the writers guild strike and that really showed the the way that everything was kind of rushed and so that's really kind of the way it felt it felt like the the different themes that were brought in they were very very short there there really isn't all that much really good um playability of that score album but the um the second one's got some really good meaty uh pieces that are really really strong there is there is a particular track on there. It's the sixth track on the on the album. It's called We Were Gods Once. And I am so indebted to Steve Jablonski for coming up with this track because it is fantastic. It is so it's got such a great mood to it, and it inspired a scene in my second book in this trilogy, Ever Upward, part two in the Excelsior Journey, that is, I would say is one of the strongest scenes in the whole book. Um, it involves one of my main characters, a um, character named General Hadera. Uh, she is someone who is uh, who has been given in this story the power of her god, Tornatrax, And she decides to basically take this power as a means of releasing all of her bitterness, all of her anger at the mothers basically of her species and the way that she does that is she plunges her hand which is um uh, which has been glowing because of the power that was given to her into the swampy pond a- area that has we've already established has these uh very vicious amphibious creatures kind of floating around in it and what the power does is it enhances their evolution. So it makes them humanoid. And so they are suddenly given these arms and legs and can actually move about on land. And they just burst out of the water and become her own personal army. And it's because of that piece of music that inspired this scene I will be forever indebted to to Steve Jablonsky for coming up with that because it creates such a great mood for what I have in there and it's one of those things that I can definitely say is a major reason why I hold that book in such in such high regard normally with uh, with authors and other creatives we're we have no problem really kind of denigrated ourselves um basically as almost like a defense mechanism saying that whatever critics have to say about their about our books it's nothing compared to what i am saying about them but when it comes to ever upward that's one i have to say you no i really want you to read this i stand behind it i'm very proud of it i think you should should uh, definitely take a look at it and that scene is a huge reason why i i say that about that book
0: Wow, that's awesome! I love hearing you know people how they're inspired by music, and mm-hmm. that's definitely a, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah,
1: there's uh, the seventh the seventh track on their battle inspired a major battle, you can say during the uh, during the early part of that of that particular book. This you know, like I'm saying, like there is so much of this score that I can just say like well that inspired this scene this track inspired this scene um there is no plan you know it was another it was another big one there's there's a lot in here that uh, that really just that really just works uh for me and I have to I have to give Steve Jablonski all the credit for inspiring so much in this I'm really really grateful that he came out with this
0: sure so, are you familiar with his work outside of the Transformers universe, or is this kind of how you got introduced to Steve Jablonsky's work?
1: A little bit, you know. Um, I was. This was really my introduction to to him. I had heard some of his uh, uh, some of his horror scores, and they came off as more atmospheric than anything. If I remember correctly, I think he did the. I think he did the score for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake from 2003. I know he did the one for 2010's Nightmare on Elm Street remake, and I'm pretty sure he did the 2009 um, Friday the 13th remake. And for all of those, I felt like they were decent scores, but they didn't have the sort of feeling of, I gotta get this album so I can just listen to it and lose myself in it, the way that these Transformers scores did for
0: me. Are you a fan of his Ender's Game score?
1: I still have to sit down and watch Ender's Game. And the funny thing is, is that I have it in my catalog. And so I need to actually just, there's quite a few movies that I need to sit down and just say, okay, what do I own that I have not watched yet? Well, there's Ender's Game is one of them. It's one of those that uh, that's just kind of hanging around. It's, you know, I got it on DVD. I even got it on digital because it's, um it came with the digital copy i got a great deal on it i think it was like 5 bucks over barnes and noble so it was one of those where you just you just had to go ahead and take it and run with it and that was one of those that i feel like i need to i need to sit down and just watch it and see how and see how it is and the fact that he did the score for it that has me even more excited to sit down and listen and uh, and watch it
0: are you a fan of the book
1: i know of it But it's one that uh, that that I had had not uh, had not been able to sit down and and read yet. Um, It's one of those where it's just like once when I was the more I was hearing about it, the more I was hearing about um, the writer Orson Scott Card himself and hearing a lot of the personal things for him. It just kind of made me say like, all right, I think I'll just kind of put that one on the back burner. (laughs) Like, I'm sure I'll get to it at one point, but it's not one that I'm going to really reach out and, and go for right now. That's fair. Yeah.
0: I just, um, you know, just looking through Jablonski's filmography and it being, you know, a popular sci-fi novel Mm -hmm. and you write popular sci-fi novels. I, I was just kind of curious about that one
1: yeah, yeah the the uh that first book the first book excelsior it um it's it's got an interesting history to it. It was one that I started writing in two thousand and eight after working with that character for about sixteen years and finally getting it out in two thousand and ten as a self published form and then getting getting it picked up by um by a small press based out of St. Louis. And then after that small press went under another small press based out of the UK decided to pick it up. And each time their editors were make, were um, basically making some requesting some changes here and there. And with the, uh, the UK one, the editor really took a sledgehammer to it and it required quite a few months of redoing from the ground up. And I'm so glad that I did because it, just made that that book so much better. And the opportunity to really make that as the best way it could was was just going to be a good thing. And the, uh, the publisher really liked the changes and they were really excited for the second book, Ever Upward. And so it was after the second book came out, that was when the first book went into wide distribution and the publisher was able to secure a BookBub deal. And for the listeners, when you get a, a featured deal on BookBub, that puts it out in front of millions of potential readers. And if you drop that price for that particular sale date to say like 99 cents, you're going to create something that people are just going to at least want to grab and put into their catalog. And whether or not they're going to actually read it, that's up to them. Hopefully they do. Quite a few did, thankfully. And it wound up, making, uh, bringing in enough sales where it reached a number one best, uh, a number one spot on a, on one of Amazon's categories on Amazon us, but it also hit three other categories in Amazon Canada. And when I heard that, I was just like, well, does that mean it's an international bestseller? Yeah. Okay, great. Then it is. And so then, so (laughs) that was, that was my, that was my label. That, that was, uh, something i was really hoping that I would reach USA Today. Unfortunately, that did not happen, but who knows? Who knows what, what could happen with uh, with this third book now that the uh, once it comes out, the trilogy will finally be complete. So we'll see how, how
0: that goes. And what's the release date for the third book in this trilogy?
1: Uh, I don't have an actual release date. It's still in development, but I promise that it will be out in 2022. And I'm really holding myself to that because... 2022 will be the 30th anniversary of the creation of the character. So I really want to hit that.
0: Oh, that's very cool.
1: Yeah. And uh, again, you know, kudos to uh, Steve Jablonski for the work that he did on this particular album, because I could not for the life of me, see the climax for this third book play out the way that it does without the 14th, 15th and 16th track on this album. And those are It's Our Fight, I'm Just a Messenger and I Promise. And It's Our Fight is one of my favorite tracks that I've listened to in the past in the past decade. Something about that that particular piece, it just works so so well and when I realized how it fits in this Third story, I immediately fell for it. I was like, "Okay, this could be my favorite track that I've listened to in the past decade," because of what it did for me. And then the way I'm just a messenger kind of carries through with that whole scene because it's all for the um, the big climax in Dark of the Moon, and you get to see quite a bit of action, obviously in uh, in in the movie in Dark of the Moon, and you get to hear it in the score itself. Like it's a real good intense pulse pounding score. And the melody that comes in, I want to say like a, about a little over a minute into it's our fight is so pulse pounding that I, I I needed to use that. And then once I figured out how to use it, then it, it was golden. Then it was absolutely golden. And the way that it's, it um, I'm just a messenger plays out as well as I promise it all Flows so nicely in the story, um, so I got a whole lot of kudos to Steve Jablonski for making that happen.
0: So, uh, do you think there will be a fourth? Well, I guess I don't want you to spoil. <laughs> I, I guess that would spoil the ending. A fourth of, Excelsior? I've come
1: um, no, un- unfortunately, there. Unfortunately, there won't. Um, or actually, I should say, fortunately, there won't.
0: Because what it, um,
1: the storyline of the third one, the way that it ends it definitively ends the story of my main character Matthew Peters but um there is another story that takes place within the same universe and throughout the third book i'm kind of just kind of planting some seeds here and there for what's to come and so that next series uh which i am focusing on it's going to be a it's going to be a sci-fi one again but it's also but this one's going to be a middle grade reader so it's going to be for um, ages thirteen and up, instead of uh, the young adult. Although you know, mainly just because the younger crowd really took to Excelsior. Ah, uh, so why not kind of play to that audience and come out with a series of books that are shorter, that read a lot better, and offer characters that are more of the age that um, that our that that my readers are right now so that's that's the plan for the future this will be the final um the final part in the trilogy for excelsior but there's quite a bit more to do in
0: this universe and do you think this score specifically the dark of the moon score do you think that will be a big part of this continuation of the universe
1: somewhat and in fact i can really see it um really see some of the the opening tracks uh, really play a part in it. I can definitely see the pieces like Sentinel Prime, like Lost Signal, and I can see the um, the tracks like No Prisoners, Only Trophies. It's it definitely can you know can play a part in how this particular story really works out. I can definitely see something with I think it's called Shockwave's Revenge. That particular piece I think will uh, will definitely play a part in the first book of that that other series, that, uh, that series.
0: So I'm not super familiar with all the Michael Bay Transformers movies. Mm-hmm. I think I definitely didn't catch the last one where they, they removed Shia LaBeouf or was that the fourth one?
1: Well, the, the fourth one, the first, the first one without Shia was actually really solid. I really enjoyed that one. And I feel like if they cropped maybe about a half hour out of it, um, it would have played a lot better. There's a whole sequence uh, right around the middle point, that's a a whole uh, rescue uh, rescue sequence, and you can literally like just take that, just cut and paste, and just take it out completely, and you wouldn't miss anything. And then there's a whole other scene. Um, there's one of the one of the sequences close to the end that echoed a lot of the terraforming in Man of Steel, where things are lifted up by a magnet and then dropped. You take that whole part out, and as well as the the chunk in the middle, and you have a much more streamlined story that just works a lot better. And um, overall, I'd say that was a really really solid uh, film, and had me really excited for what was to come. Unfortunately, what was to come was Paramount and Hasbro putting together this Transformers cinematic universe roundtable. And even though they ended part four on one hell of a good cliffhanger, they decided to not bring that same writer, Aaron Kruger, back and focus on exploring a whole lot of different ideas. And thankfully, one of those ideas became Bumblebee. But one of those ideas became The Last Night, which was an absolute mess, absolute mess of a movie. I was so disappointed with that one.
0: Yeah, I was really excited about Bumblebee. I think maybe I was a little fatigued from, I don't know, there seemed to be a lot of drama around this franchise with you know, first Megan Fox and then Shia leaving. So when Bumblebee came out, I was kind of re-energized a little bit. If that makes any sense? it does. yeah.
1: and and Bumblebee was, you know, like a very uh, very strong movie. Um, I thought it was much better than than a lot of what had come before. I'm not sure exactly where it ranks in terms of of where where um where it mingles in with one, three, and four, because those are the stronger ones in my opinion. Two was. Two was a mess, and five was just a heartbreak. But it's definitely up there. I've and a lot of people say that it was the uh, that it was the best live action rendition, and I would not argue with that.
0: But how do you feel about the music for Bumblebee? I was, because uh, Steve Jablonsky did not do the music.
1: I was pretty I was pretty good with the music. I feel like it kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. I feel like the focus was a lot on the '80s music that was that was there, and mm. It's one of those movies where it just kind of, you just kind of have to go with it in terms of the kind of songs that they were incorporating, and for the most part, I thought they were they were solid choices. Um, the score itself, I felt, was not very memorable.
0: Yeah, that's what I kind of noticed about Bumblebee versus you know these Jablonsky um, scores, which have these companion soundtracks. Which have like twelve songs on them, but only like three or four songs are actually in the movie. Yeah. And
1: yeah. And uh yeah, I, I remember hearing the um the soundtrack to the first film. And there were a couple of songs that I liked, but I remember there was this really awful rendition of the theme, and it just it 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 did not work for me. And it it came off very go-go Power Rangers, you know, um, kind of feel to it. And I, I was not a fan of that, but I liked the Linkin Park song that that um, I liked all all three Linkin Park songs that end the um, <laughs> that end the three movies. And I really dug the um, uh, Battle Cry by Imagine Dragons, which closed the fourth one. But the fifth one, I feel like I, I honestly don't remember the song at all that, that ended that one. I think it was just me just just wanting to just get out of the theater as quickly as possible. Oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I was I, I was I was angry at that one. I really tried. I wanted so badly to like that movie and it just wouldn't let me. I feel like that uh, that soundtrack was definitely as much of a letdown as as the movie itself, but the score that Jablonski did for The Last Night was fabulous. I feel like he was um I think he realized that he needed to do something to really kind of make this movie worth anything. And thankfully he 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 showed up. I wish the writers did, but he showed up.
0: So is it a foregone conclusion that if you were able to turn Excels- the Excelsior series into some sort of visual medium that you would try to get Steve Jablonski to score your project?
1: I would definitely not say no. <laughs> I think that uh, he, he I, I would love to hear what he, what he would come up with. He would definitely be on my list. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where just like, I can't um, settle on just one when, when it comes to who is doing the score. Because there are so many different, so many different composers that, that inspired so many different scenes in these movies. because like there, quite a few of them actually are from the Harry Potter franchise. So like that was another one that, uh, um, that I was able to listen to a lot that was just like, okay, well, this, this works for this and this works for this. I and mean, if you put together um, which I've done, I've actually made my own soundtracks for both movies. And the composers are all over the place, but they work for the scenes that they were doing at that time.
0: So out of the Harry Potter scores, um, who, who, I guess which scores stand out to you?
1: Surprisingly, a big one was Half-Blood Prince. Um, I think Nicholas Hooper did an amazing job with that. The Journey into the Cave when... Dumbledore is is fighting off the Inferi. The tribute to Dumbledore, like right at right near the end, there's there's quite a few pieces in there that inspired other pieces from, from Forever Upward and the Deathly Hallows Part Two score that was done. I thought that was also fabulous. And the um, the scene with the Resurrection Stone that inspired a huge huge part of. Ever upward, as did the um, Severus and Lily track. So yeah, you know, like even though I'm taking it away a little bit from Dark of the Moon, I do have to give credit where it's due for the other composers that have come up with so much great material that inspired so many scenes that I, I really responded to, like as the writer. And I just hope that that uh, that other people are feeling the same way about it when it's all said and done.
0: I mean, the focus was Dark of the Moon, but, you know, I definitely love to hear about the different composers that you connect with. I'm not too familiar with Nicholas Hooper. I know that he did, of the Harry Potter films.
1: Yeah, he did um, Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince. His Order of the Phoenix score I thought was solid, but the, uh, the Half-Blood Prince one, I was going back to that over and over and over again. I was just like, there was something about this score that just works. And... It just it, I just could not stop listening to it. And then when it got to um the scenes that I mentioned before, like Journey to the Cave, I was like, this is this is fabulous. Then I saw the the moment in in my book that um that, that music inspired. And whenever that happens, you know, those those additional scores, those scores really get an extra, you know, they they go up a, f- a few rungs on on the ladder for me.
0: Sure. Yeah, I was just kind of looking at the different composers for the Harry Potter films. You have John Williams, who, you know, no introduction necessary for him. Of course, yeah. You have Desplat, who's, you know, you have Desplat, who's a very popular composer now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Most famously now, I think, with Wes Anderson, among other Mm -hmm. filmmakers. Patrick Doyle, as well. Oh, Um, his his score for Goblet
1: of Fire is fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. And the entire track, Voldemort... Um, inspired my ending. It inspired my climax of ever upward, um, and that's something that I will never ever forget. For, um, because the way that it the way that it all came out, as soon you know, it was it was it wasn't one of those things that that immediately struck. Um, it was quite a few years after hearing it, and that's it was when. Just listening to it over and over again, just like, I know that there's something here. There's something here. And hearing the, the last part of it, the last couple of minutes of, of that piece, it just, I saw it. like It, it r- literally like exploded in my mind. I was like, that is my climax. And I had just been making sure that the rest of the book works well enough so that when it
0: reaches to that moment, it's earned. And thankfully, I did. For some reason I'm I just don't connect with a lot of the previous and af uh work after for Nicholas Hooper. Mm-hmm. And you would assume that after doing a Harry Potter movie that he would be in or doing two Harry Potter films that he would be in uh he would be in high demand. Yeah. Yeah, just a lot of what he's done mm-hmm. I've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> it it you know, I you would think with someone who gets um commissioned to do something as um visible as a Harry Potter film that it's like, oh, you know he's done X, y and Z film, and then afterwards he did X, y and Z film mm-hmm. but i'm I'm drawing a blank when I look at a lot of his work. I mean, good for him, obviously he's done he did a great job they they brought him back to do a second Harry Potter film, and he's been um very inspiring for you, but oh yeah, yeah. It just seems like the career trajectory is not what I would have expected for someone who was able to do two Harry Potter. Films. Yeah, there is
1: that. Yeah, it's that. It, um, it, it is a shame, but at the same time, I will. It's kind of like it's one of those like we'll always have Paris kind of things. Like I'll always have that Half Blood Prince score that got me through so much of writing that second book, and it just became one of the several reasons why I look back at that particular book and say that you know that's the best thing I've ever written.
0: Yeah, not, not a slight to him. I think he's just on a lot of British TV s- stuff that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. But it's, you know, by doing research, it's kind of fun to see these kind of outliers. And, you know, he did a great job and, you know, it worked for you.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, like I'm biased. <laughs> and just like uh, just like what, you know, what Nicholas Hooper brought, what Patrick Doyle brought, what um, and what Steve Jablonski brought with Dark of the Moon. Um, I will forever be in debt to them for everything that they uh, that they inspired, you know, for me
0: before, um, you know, you mentioned doing this movie. I didn't know who Steve Jablonski was. I had seen the movies. um, I've I've seen some of his other scores Mm -hmm. or seen other films that he's scored, but never really went to go, hey, who is this guy? Right,
1: right. I, I give a strong recommend to um, to the Dark of the Moon score. I thought that he did a terrific job with that, and the different themes that he brought in for that one, I thought really worked. And like I said, you know, like after um, such an underwhelming score for Revenge of the Fallen, I feel like it was um, it was it was a, a wonderful wonderful bounce back. I felt I've always liked the guy. You know, I, I've really I really admire what he did with that first Transformers film. And I do like, you know, some of the stuff that he brought in to Revenge of the Fallen. But like I said, the tracks were really, really short and it just felt like um so much of it was just rehashed from that first film. But you, you have to chalk it up to this was this was a writer's guild casualty. And once you get past that, then you can just kind of move on with the, with the rest of the film and, um, and then really enjoy dark of the moon is seemed like everyone was much more on top of their game that uh, the second time that the uh, for that third time.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought up the writer's strike because I feel like people have forgotten about it and people have forgotten how much that has affected a lot of shows. I think heroes was a huge casualty of that. Heroes was a
1: big one. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But when I was researching Jablonski, um, I just love kind of the first thing on his Wikipedia page about how he was studying computer science, switched to musical composition and basically just called Hans Zimmer's production house and said, "Hey, do you guys need any help?" Nice.
1: <laughs> that's smart. That's a, that's a great way to do it. And I'm I'm thrilled that he did. Um I'm I'm, you know, very very grateful that uh, that he was able to um that that everything fell into place the way that it did for him i'm glad that he was there i'm glad that he did the work i'm glad that that he was able to make the connection with michael bay i'm glad that he was able to deliver this kind of this kind of work because i honestly don't know what the third book's climax would be if it was not for that triple threat of of tracks right near the end for that album I'll I'll forever uh, be indebted to him for that.
0: How much of the Hans Zimmer influence do you hear in his music? Or do you think he's kind of forged his own path away from that?
1: It's definitely there. It sounds a lot more like, like some of his earlier stuff, um, specifically backdraft. Backdraft is a terrific score that I feel kind of got lost in the shuffle with, uh, with Hans and, that was one that I was listening to throughout high school, like over and over and over again. I just loved it. I loved the epic scope that it gave that, um, that it gave that story. And I was really, really thrilled with it. And so it, a lot of it sounds similar to that, especially that third, that, uh, that third movie. And so I, I feel like the influence is definitely there. I feel like, You can definitely kind of hear some of some of some of his other percussion driven scores in the in in stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, where it's less theme providing and more of just kind of like adding to the mood, which is a lot of what um, a lot of what Zimmer brought to say, like the Dark Knight, the 2008 one, you know will always forever love that movie. But the score is not one that I always really kind of listen to on its own. It adds to the movie incredibly well, but you know, it doesn't really stand on its own the way that some of his other scores do.
0: I agree. The, what I love about the Hans Zimmer, Christopher Nolan, Batman movies is just, I feel like Warner brothers has a tendency to bloat their music with Warner brothers records music. Mm-hmm. And you know, not getting out of the way of a composer like Hans Zimmer. Yeah. You know, like the, you know, the Joel Schumacher movies were oh, yeah example that were Yeah, they were know, they were overcompensating for that. On that soundtrack. Yeah,
1: they were definitely overcompensating for for um for that one. They were so I feel like they were so they they felt that they were burned so badly by Batman Returns. You know, it's, it's especially since there was only one album for Batman Returns, and that was the score with the Susie and the Banshees piece right at the very end of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, it did not have that commercial viability that they were really looking for. So they really pushed that to the hilt with um, with Batman Forever. Like, they're doing music videos and doing everything they possibly could to really get that that out there. You know, like, ending the end credits with, um, I think it was like U2 and then Seal, I want to say there was like at least one more track from there. Those were I know those were the the two um, the two anchors for Mm -hmm. that album, and then you know they were really pushing Batman and Robin's one in just all the wrong ways,
0: (laughs) right? Yeah, so I guess one of the good things that they didn't do with these transformer movies is they didn't try to insert too much popular music into the movie. Yeah. Even though they made these soundtracks that had a bunch of songs on it.
1: Yeah, and and um, there was definitely you know, like you said, you know, there were those there were the soundtracks that were released with only like a handful that were actually in the movie. Um, I feel like out of those, I feel like Dark of the Moon definitely had, I would say, like had the strongest selections out of them, for the most part. But I but I was glad to hear that uh, that the score was really given um given its its
0: own chance to breathe in that one yeah i think i saw that it's a 39 minute soundtrack but only four of the songs are actually in the movie and they have very minor roles
1: yeah and i think uh two of them are two of them are in the credits <laughs>
0: so yeah i'm not i'm not typically a huge fan of soundtracks that do that but at least it was in service of letting a superior score have its due.
1: Yes, that which is something I will forever be grateful for. You know, it's 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 kind of like the, um, the 2002 Spider-Man score. You know how that was really kind of front and center, but they were really, really pushing that music from and inspired by the film Spider-Man, <laughs> <laughs> where again, I there, there was only like about two songs maybe that uh, that were given any sort of any sort of prominence in the film and only one of them. And one of them was the end credit song.
0: Yeah. I know that you have a podcast about the non MCU, the non MCU films. Yes. But I think one, one smart thing about the actual MCU is the lack of popular music within the movies. Yeah. To make them dated.
1: Yeah. And thankfully quite a few of those scores are damn good. I'm glad to, you know, own, A handful of those albums i'm glad that uh that some of the themes have really have have stepped up and become truly memorable
0: yeah i i feel like i hadn't heard alan silvestri's name in a really long time and then i feel like he's made a really strong comeback oh yeah um you know obviously he's going to be known now for the avengers theme but Mm -hmm. rightfully
1: so because that's a damn good theme
0: (laughs) but you know i remember him from you know back to the future and who framed Mm -hmm. roger rabbit And then I feel like he kind of predator yep, and predator. Yes. Yep. And then I feel like, you know, maybe his name kind of faded a little bit. And then um, I feel like he's made a strong comeback um, over the past five, 10 years.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I can definitely agree. Agree to that.
0: So uh, thank you so much, George, for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I was glad to talk about Dark of the Moon with you and, and the other scores that have inspired your writing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing I'll, I'll always be grateful for is you know all these composers coming up with uh, with with pieces that not only uh, not only serve the movies that they're in but also serve in many many other creative ways. So I'll always be grateful to film music composers for doing that.
0: Yeah, and that's a big reason why I started this podcast. You know, there's pieces of music, whether it be a, a song or a piece of a score that can inspire someone to write a, a series of books.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: So I loved hearing about that. Um, so they can find Excelsior and the other books of the series um, mm-hmm. basically anywhere where you can buy a book. Yep. <laughs>
1: yeah but you can find it on you can also you can also find the audiobooks on audible um i've i recorded the audiobooks for both excelsior and ever upward myself and and i'll be doing the same thing with greater glory once once that is uh completely finished i will be you'll know that it's completely finished when uh, when you hear champagne corks popping over in st louis so and probably over in the UK, too, because that'll be for my publisher, being
0: happy that I finally delivered. <laughs> <laughs> you can also check out George's two podcasts, Excelsior Journeys and From Duck Till Dark, outside the Marvel Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, you can find them both on uh, – in fact, if you go to
1: he'sgotit.com, that'll not only take you to the home base where you can learn about pretty much everything that I do. You can learn about the podcasts. You can learn about the books. You can even – uh, purchase copies directly from me. Um, so that way you'll get you'll get uh, um personalized autograph copies that also include a couple little um a little extra goodies along the way. And you can also you know find the the books themselves on Amazon or wherever books books are sold. And um, yeah, basically, uh, if you go to it dot com slash podcast, that'll take you to all you need to know about. Um, both excelsior journeys and from duck till dark outside the marvel studios and also you'll be learning about the third podcast that i'll have up and running soon which is a hybrid podcast slash audiobook for from parts unknown which is my um, completed five-part sci-fi wrestling serial
0: oh very cool Yep.
1: It's been fun. It's been
0: fun so far, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing where everything goes from now on. You can follow George on Twitter at George Soroy. Mm-hmm. That's J. That's G E O R G E S I R O I S, and you can get up to date, or you can you can stay up to date on what George is working on. Yep, that's it. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find
1: me on Facebook. I'm you know pretty much all over the place on all those platforms.
0: Very cool. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Um, It was a pleasure to meet you and to hear about how scores have inspired you. Thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.